continuing on in first corinthians chapter 13 part five in the university or university uh, (laughs) unity diversity and maturity Uh, that's where that word came from university unity and diversity huh interesting perspective We're going to talk about maturity, seeking maturity. Dan has been speaking the last four Sundays on 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13. And last week was verses 4 through 7 on love and what love is and what love isn't. What does it look like? What does it not look like? I just love the way that God used Paul to write things down. He's a man after my own heart. He loved to give perspective. Paul wasn't about just saying love is this, 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 this. He would come back around and show you what it wasn't. Because it's easy to stand there and say, yeah, I agree with that. Love is patient. Love is kind. Those are great things. But we don't like to look at what we do in life. We don't like to look at ourselves very much. And so we don't want to think about the fact that it doesn't act unbecomingly. It's not jealous. It doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. So Paul brings us around to help the Corinthians say, but you know what, guys, I'm seeing a lot of this in your lives. Love is patient and kind. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things and endures all things. But you know what I'm seeing in your lives, Corinthians? I'm seeing jealousy, braggarts, arrogance, unbecoming behavior, selfishness, anger, Seeing all these things in your lives. So you need to know, Corinthians, that God is going to show us what love is. And when you look in the mirror, many of you are going to see what love isn't. And there were obviously issues there. And Paul was trying to help the Corinthians to deal with those. And there's no better way to deal with an issue than to be able to see the issue. And to be able to really get a grasp of it and and attack it. So Paul very carefully wove through the story in his words from four to seven, what love is and what love isn't. And then he's going to come around and say, why is it so important to understand love? I mean, really, what's the deal? I remember when I was a kid growing up, you'd see this everywhere. Love is colon. And then it would say sunshine, you know, or beautiful flowers or, or something in the world's attempt to make love something we could control and something that we could offer something with. And so it was everywhere that we would see that. But that, that wasn't what God's perspective of love was. God's perspective of love is something totally different. It was a selflessness. It's a not about me, any of it. None of love is about me. When I exhibit love, it's because of God. It's because he gives me the ability to love and I don't bring anything to the table other than obedience. All I bring to the perspective of love is my obedience to God. So what's important about it? What is the benefit of love? Well, you know, in the touchy feely perspective, the passionate love is wonderful. We talk about that. We dream about that. Most of us have had the opportunity to experience it. And we pray for that for our children, that they could they could have a passionate love. But I was reading through a book by J. Vernon McGee, and he, I just love the way the guy distills stuff down. It's, it's very basic. His perspective was, you know, passionate love's like straw. It'll stand one good match. <laughs> then it's done. 
See, the love that we talk about with God isn't like that at all. It's this enduring, never-ending, something that's buoyed up by something that we don't provide. Which is cool, right? Because if we don't provide the buoyancy for love, then love can't fail. The only time love fails is when it's all based upon us. And that's what's the problem with passionate love. Passionate love is often based upon things that aren't lasting. And so it fails and it goes away. And the blessing of God is that he will sometimes use that passionate love to start something. But then he gives us this enduring love that he buoys things up. And he's the foundation of that. It's not about us and what we do. So as we move into verse 8, Paul's going to give the Corinthians a reason why he just spent this time talking about love. Why did I bother for you somewhat passionate but not enduring love people? And in verse 8 he says, For love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Now Paul's bringing the Corinthians back to something they dearly love. The sign gifts. Gifts of prophecy, teaching, and tongues. The Corinthians are enamored by these spiritual gifts. In fact, there's so much that they are willing to give up on almost everything else just to be able to have those. To be able to have that. And, and you know, he spends chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14. The concept of some of these gifts is discussed more in these three chapters than the rest of the Bible put together. So, for instance, the gift of tongue. There is more written about the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 than everywhere else in the Bible combined. So these guys were infatuated with these gifts, right? They had a passionate love, if you will, for these gifts. They wanted them because they were showy. They were cool. They were something you could stand up in front and really catch somebody's attention. And that was an issue. And Paul's really earnestly trying to help them with that. He's really trying to bring them around to what really is important in the believer's life. And hence the body, because the body is the underlying support system for all of us. We as individual body parts are of nothing on our own. We don't complete anything by ourselves. We are part of a big group, part of a whole. So just the same as if somebody were to plop out a kidney and throw it on the floor, it wouldn't do very well. It would wither, it would die, it would go away. Just like us, right? If we were to do that, if we were to take ourselves out from the body, we would do the same thing. So that's Paul's really trying to help these guys understand the unity and the importance of working in the body. He's also trying to help them understand the importance of each individual part is critical. Every part has its place and everything is important. And that's where the challenge came for the Corinthians, because they wanted to be those beautiful body parts, those parts that showed up, right, that the spotlights hit on. They followed them around. Wherever they were, the spotlight followed around. That's what they wanted to be. So they were fine with the unity of the body perspective at some level. They were even okay somewhat with diversity as long as they were the ones who had the best gifts, right? They, They could tolerate diversity as long as somebody else was being the kidney. But they didn't want to be a kidney. They didn't like what kidneys did. The whole concept of filtering out things just wasn't for them. So... What they wanted then was the sign gifts. And Paul's saying, you're all wrong. 
You got it all wrong. And that's what he tells them. Love's never going away. It's here forever. It is one of the things that we talk about in the Bible that doesn't have an end date. Everything else does. The gifts of prophecy, gift of knowledge, they will be abolished. The gift of tongues will cease. These will end. So what does it look like? If we look at 1 Peter 4, verse 8, he gives us some more insight as we look at these things. He's talking about love. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sin. Isn't that cool? Who in here has not sinned? Who has been the benefactor of somebody else's love for them when they've sinned? What an amazing thing that God has brought before this with the whole concept of love and covering a multitude of sins. First John chapter four, verses 16 through 21. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this love is perfected with us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Isn't that cool? Where do we get the, con- where do we get the ability to love? From God. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So what wonderful considerations with love that bring. But there's a weight to that, right? And I think that's the concept that people struggle with, with love. Gifts, the gift of prophecy, I can study the word. I can get up here and I can proclaim, I can teach, and I can do that with relatively little cost to me. A little time, but otherwise minimal cost. But when I really love someone, I have to forget somebody. Me. When I teach, I don't forget me. I'm the one doing the studying. Now, hopefully I get out of the way enough that God can use what I've done. And that's important. But it's a lot less sacrificial for me to teach you than to love you. And I think that's a lot of the reason that the the Corinthians weren't keen on things like love. Let's do the showy stuff that doesn't require me being selfless. Because after all, how can I be showy if I'm selfless? How can I draw attention to myself if I'm selfless? I can't do that. That would be a horrible thing. So at some level, they were willing to give up the enduring or the permanent for the temporal. They wanted the temporal stuff. I want it now. I want to be, everybody look at me now. Don't I look good? Aren't I doing cool things? They weren't interested in the fact that love endures forever. Love will be there till the end. And these other things will go away. What's going to happen to those people whose whole life has been in the pursuit of showy things, showy gifts, showy cars, showy homes, whatever it is, when the end comes? Where will they be? How will you take them with you? You won't. They'll be gone, but love abides forever. And he who says he hates his brother can't love God. That's tough, guys. 
That's tough stuff. That's an everyday world for us. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you people work or live or spend time around people that are not very lovable? Good thing my neighbors aren't here. That's an issue, right? It's tough. I could give you a list of people that I struggle loving. Last week was so good for me to learn, so hard for me to hear. Because I know there are people in my life that I don't love. That's my issue to deal with. And God's working on my heart with that. And and interestingly enough, he's bringing them. They had been away, right? Almost like a hiatus. They'd been out of my life. In the last two weeks, he's just bringing them back. One right after the other. And it's a cool opportunity for me to work on loving them. I haven't perfected it, but I am working on it. And it's cool that God's doing that, but it hurts. It hurts a lot. The love God gives us is permanent, and the best part is we can't stop Him from loving us. It's impossible. We can't make God not love us. Regardless of our sin. So if you're sitting out here and you're holding on to this horrible sin, that doesn't matter what it is, God still loves you. He has enough ability to love that He can ignore that if you'll just confess that to Him and turn from it. He's not going to hold on. He's not going to keep track of those things. He promises us that. right? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you sin, it's not good. And don't continue to do it just to see how much grace he has. But on the other hand, no. Believer, he's forgiven you. There is no sin, believer or unbeliever, that you can have done that is too big for God to forgive you of. Isn't that cool? Does anybody else get kind of a warm feeling in their heart with that? That is so neat. That is love. That is love where no matter how much someone has wronged you, there's forgiveness for it. If I could have just the smallest portion of that, I would be so much further ahead than I am right now. I can only hope that as God continues to work in my heart and my life, that he will perfect me until the point where I can be that. And that's what he's looking at. Prophecy and knowledge, unfortunately, will not stay forever. Prophecy, it was said, what happens when prophecies come to be? Right? So you prophesy something here, and then it happens. What does it become the next day? History. Right? So that's what we're dealing with. All the prophecies of Christ are what? They're now history because he has fulfilled them, except for the coming back one, right? They'll be coming back. But for the most part, they've been fulfilled. They're now history. That's what's going to happen with all prophecies. At some point, they'll all be done. Everything will have happened and we'll walk. We'll take the next step. Prophecy will be no more because it's now all history. It is here and back, not here and forward. That's one of the cool things. That's what they're talking about. Prophecy and knowledge will both do that. They're going to be abolished when the perfect comes. And it's an interesting part. When he talks about prophecy and knowledge in verse 8, he uses the same term, but he uses a different term than he does for tongues. So prophecy and knowledge will go away. They'll be abolished is the better translation. And tongues, on the other hand, will cease. But when's this stuff going to happen and what does that look like? Well, we know that as we move on, prophecy and knowledge will become complete and done. And when they call it at the perfection, 
And we're going to get into that in a little bit. But they will go away when the perfect comes. Tongues, however, are going to cease. So it at least intimates that that they're going to be different. Tongues are going to cease. There's every reason to believe, as Dan has already said, that tongues and the sign gifts were primarily beneficial to show the authentication of the message of the gospel. At this point in time, we really don't need that. There's every reason to think that tongues have already ceased, that they're gone. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you, God, what he can or can't do with tongues. That's not for me to do. The Spirit says he will give the gifts as he wills. The word would indicate that tongues now have been completed and that they are ceased. The other interesting part of tongues for me is we we spend a lot of time talking about tongues. The tongues are a big part of the church. They're a big part of what goes on, and everybody's concerned about tongues. Do you realize that in all of the Bible, tongues are only mentioned in Acts and 1 Corinthians? Why do we spend so much time on this? Why is it that this is something that has got such a hold on Christianity today? There's prophecy, knowledge, love. You know how many books love is in? How many books are in the Bible, right? 66, 66. That's the way it works. Love's everywhere. The enduring nature of love is everywhere. There's all these other things. But we get fixated on tongues. And we're going to talk a lot more in the next two weeks about those But I think it's an interesting thing. I think, personally, that tongues are such a divisive or challenging area is because they're emotional. It's like music, right? Music is an emotional part of our life. Tongues in the spirit is an emotional side of things as it works on that. And I think people struggle to accept things when they're so emotionally tied to them. But regardless of whether tongues have ceased or not, and I believe that for all intents and purposes they have based upon the word, but even if they still exist, next week we're going to talk about what it looks like to really use them because God was very clear on what it looked like. There is no ifs, ands, or buts. This, if you're going to use tongue, this is what it looks like. I think that that the reason that people like that again is that they're showy gifts. Tongues are showy. Wouldn't it be cool? To be able to truly use the gift of tongues. To be able to go to a foreign country and to share the gospel without knowing a word of their language. That would be neat. And I can understand the desire there. That is not at all how tongues are typically used in America today. Not at all. It's a totally different perspective. And I think they're used today not to take the word out, but to bring eyes in. I want you to look at me and what I do. Love, on the other hand, is work. You got to work at love. It's dying to yourself every morning. You get up every morning and say, I love, put in any name you want there so much that I am willing to not get my way today. I am willing to sacrifice me because this person or these people are more important than me. That's that's love. And I think it takes a lot more work to do that. Verses 9 and 10, we start learning more about prophecy and how things are going to go away and talking about things like the perfect. So verse 9 and 10, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. It's a great verse. It's It's an interesting deal. And of course, it becomes challenging because what does it mean? What is the perfect and and what does that look like? The perfect means in here translate to having come to an end, being completed. 
So we could say, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when everything is done, we will no longer be partial. We will be total. We will be whole. We in of ourselves will be perfected. When the perfect arrives, we will be perfected. So what are the opportunities in the scripture? There's a number of places where people will bring up a number of options on when is the perfect. When did the perfect arrive? In some cases, when will it arrive uh, in others? Well, we don't believe that the perfect came at the completion of the scripture. Why is that? Why wouldn't we think so? I mean, now they've been a good time. Everything gets written down. It's typed out nicely uh, in multiple languages now. We could stop there and say that's good, that, that the perfect has arrived. But what are the two signs that we know or two indications? There are many, but there are two easy indications that are very applicable for today that tell us that the perfect did not come with the completion of Scripture. Number one, I'm still up here talking. Right? Prophecy and teaching abounds. It's everywhere. We're still there. So we know that unless we're doing everything wrong, the perfect has not arrived because of that. So, so the, the gifts of knowledge and prophecy are still in operation. What about the rapture or the second coming? Could it be that? Could that be the time at the, at the rapture or when Christ comes back and sets up the thousand-year reign? Will that be the time? Well, it doesn't indicate that. Scripture doesn't look that way. Uh, if you look in Joel 2, Acts 2, 17 through 21, and Revelation 11:3, it still talks about an abundance of teachers and preachers going on during the end times, during the rapture. So it sure wouldn't look like that. Uh, I mean, God's, God's telling us that he's going to have people doing this, and he's going to set people up to do that. So I don't think that those guys are going to be doing it wrong. So it sure wouldn't look like that is the time of perfection. So it would seem that the perfect will come at the eternal state. Right? That would make the most sense if you look at it, because there we won't need that anymore. We'll see God face to face. In Revelation 22.4, it talks about being there. Can you guys just picture that? Just take a second and recognize you will not come close to what it's going to look like, but do your best. Imagine being face to face with God after all this time. Isn't that a cool thought? Can you wait for the day? Can you wait for the time when all we do is praise and glorify and worship? I just, I'm so excited for that time. It can come today. I am ready for it. There is nothing here on earth that means more to me than that. I would give everything up so quickly just for that day to happen. Uh, and yet I trust God. I know he's got his planned time and he will come back and he will do this when he intends to. But recognize that that's probably when this will all stop. We will no longer need prophecy or teaching because there will be nothing more to teach. It will be there. We'll be there. Believers, those who have bent their knee to God and confessed his name and those who love him will be there. There will be no more need to read the Bible. There will be no more need for somebody to teach us because we'll have it all. That is the point of perfection. And from our personal perspective and what I believe from from studying through the word that he's talking about when we will no longer see the gifts of prophecy and the gift of teaching. But you know what will still be there? Love. 
love will still be there. It's the most amazing thing. If we go back, I missed the verse that I wanted to cover. It talks about Jesus loving us until the very end. Except for the fact there will be no end. Isn't that cool? There's no end. When we go to heaven, it won't matter. We won't be concerned about whether or not we got our rest before the next day's work. We won't worry about um, this issue or that issue. We'll just be there. Uh, that is going to be such a wonderful and encouraging time. But until then, we're to be about getting stuff done. Right? We're to be about getting things accomplished. And that's what he continues to talk about. Here in verse 11, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child and reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. God has expectations for us. He has holy expectations for each and every one of us. He has no intention of us stopping when we proclaim him as our Lord and Savior. It's not what it's about for him. He's not about just getting us to the point of salvation. That's a huge thing, and it's a wonderful thing. But he expects for us to grow up. He expects for us to mature. He expects there to be a difference tomorrow than there was today. That that a year from now, the people ought to be able to look at our lives and see a difference than they saw the year before that. And that's his expectations. That's our expectations as parents, isn't it? I mean, none of us have a child... And when they're two years old, say, I hope they never change. We may occasionally, when they're 17 or 18, wish they were two for a little bit. Because that would be more mature than their acting. But but that's not what we want for our kids. We want our kids to mature. God wants us to mature. He saves us as babes. We talk about yearning for meat. Not being satisfied with milk because he wants us to have a diet that befits our age and our maturity. If we go to Ephesians 4, it really talks about that. We, we got to be about changing where we are and what we're doing. But let's read Ephesians 4, verses 14 through 16. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So why is it so critical for us to mature? Why should we? Why why do we need to change? Anybody any thoughts? Maybe because it's a little bit harder for us to be driven off track when we mature. Maybe it's because we become more Christ-like as we mature. Maybe it's because we can have a better effect on other people as we mature. But it's also critical for the body. Right? The whole concept of the unity of the body, the body can't mature if the individual parts don't mature. You can go back and look at the liver, right? One of the problems in the liver with some people is the fact that it doesn't mature. You get a hypoplastic liver and you get all sorts of other problems. The brain doesn't work. The rest of the body parts start to fall apart. If you don't mature, if each individual part doesn't mature, it doesn't work. What about the joint? What if, your, what if your knee joint stayed the same as it was when you were two? 
Right? What if it stayed this big around and then we grew up and the rest of our body grew up to mature size? Well, it wouldn't hold up. It just wouldn't work. We can't do with the immature body parts either. So while we ourselves have to mature for just for our own growth and maturity, we also have to mature for the body's maturity. That's part of the unity thing. And we've got to have all the different parts, but we've got to grow up in them. So we have to be constantly doing that. And that's one of the things that Paul's talking about here. Look, it was fine to talk like a child when you were a child. That was fine. It was fine to think like a child when you were a child. And it was fine to reason like a child when you were a child. But you're no longer a child. So I expect more. I expect some maturity in there. We've got to mature. We have to leave behind our childish arguments. We have to leave behind... Uh, our childish behaviors and our childish desires. We can't bring them along into the body and have the body work the way it's supposed to. We have to do our part in that maturation process and we have to be seeking out God for that, right? He's the one who's going to grow us, but if we refuse to be where He is or listen to what He has to say, it's going to be very, very difficult for that to happen. And that was one of the things Paul was saying to us as well. And then in verse 12, he goes on to say, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it talks about the fact that we are to walk by faith, not by sight. Because we can't see everything. We talked before about love and how if we can't love our neighbor whom we see every day, how can we love a God we can't see? God acknowledges that he doesn't show himself to us specifically. He shows himself to us, I think, in a lot of different ways. But we don't see God the person now. We will only see that in heaven. So it's going to be... Difficult. There are things we aren't going to see as, as obviously as we will at some point in time. In Revelation 22, 4, again, it says that we're going to see him face to face. So it tells us you're going to have to walk by faith for now. But there's going to be a time when you're not going to have to walk by faith anymore. You're going to see him face to face. But in the meantime, continue to grow. Continue to mature. Continue to look and see what he has for us. Once all knowledge is completed, there will be nothing more. Once we reach that state where we are are eternally with him, all things behind will be history. And we won't have to worry about any more from that point on. We'll see it all. Can you, again, just think, we, we get cheated at some level, if you will, because God knows us completely from the moment we're born. There's nothing that surprises him. This morning when you got up and, and you were so loving to everybody in your house and so freely giving of yourself, God knew that was going to happen to whoever it was in the body that it did. For the rest of us who wanted this our way, we need to leave at this time. We need to be ready for here. God also knew that because he knows us. He knows our innermost being and our heart. And nothing surprises him about us. And he knows that tomorrow there's a wind coming. And some of us will be firmly anchored and will stay on track. And some of us will get blown off, tar- off, off target. And he knows that. He's already preparing for something to come up alongside you to keep you from going too far. And he's going to start guiding you back. 
And those are the things that we see. It's dim now. We don't see everything. If we could see everything, if we could understand everything, we would never get taken off track, would we? Because we'd know. I'm not going to do that. That'd be really dumb. Because I know that if I do that, I'm off track. But we don't, none of us ever say that. How many of you, when you get blown off your, your charted uh, path, take the step and say, I know this is a really bad thing to do and I can't wait to get there? None of us, right? Or rarely. Maybe, maybe not, maybe we do sometimes. But the bottom line is we don't do it on purpose. It's because we can't see what's down the end of that. But as we mature, we can see that better, right? How many of you as adults would go back and do the very same things you did as kids? Yeah, none of us. Some of the stuff we would do because it was the right thing to do. But there are plenty of things all of us, I'm sure, would, would stay as far away from as we could possibly. How many of you share those very same things with your kids? And how well do they listen? It's all part of the maturation process. Did our parents try to tell us? Yeah, absolutely they did. Did we listen? Sometimes. That's the whole concept here. But God's asking for us to grow up, to mature, to be the body that he needs us to be. We have to be maturing. So that's cool, right? That's why we're in the word. It's why we're studying. It's why we're desperately trying to get to know Him better. It's why we make the effort to come on Sunday mornings. It's why so many of you that are here that volunteer and devote your time to things that the body works. It's why the worship team comes and they come early on Sundays and they practice one evening a week often. It's why, it's why we do it. It's because we desire to give back to God and we want to grow up. We want to mature. So my encouragement to everyone is continue to look at those areas in your life that Dan brought up last week that are challenging you. Those, those don'ts, right? This is what love doesn't look like. Go back and review those and see where God might have for you to really be working and growing in that. In verse 13, he finishes up. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. We talk about the fact that faith will be complete. We will no longer have to have faith when we see God face to face. Because we won't need to walk by faith anymore. We can look at Him. Our hope will be completed because in the end, when we see Him face to face, we know that the hope that we had in our salvation was real. It wasn't something we made up. It wasn't something that somebody just came up with that was a cool idea just to take us off path. It was real. They'll be done. We'll see the completion and the fruition of faith and hope and prophecy and teaching and tongues and everything. But not love. Love never ends. And that is the cool thing about it. What is love? Everything. It's enduring. It's permanent. It's only possible with God. That's the other challenge. If you find yourself really struggling to love someone, go to the well. Go to the well, right? If you're thirsty, the last thing you're going to do is take a walk across the desert. How many of us, when we're struggling loving our neighbors or our family members or the people that we work with, how often do we turn from God because we say, you know, I don't understand God why you don't strike him down. 
Look at all the bad things that this person does. There is no more selfish person in this world than this one. Why don't you deal with it? We do that all the time. Instead of going before him and saying, God, I can't love them. Help me to love them. Give me some more love so I may love them more. And look for that in John 13.1. was the verse I was looking for earlier. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Never ending. And because we know that there will never be an end with Christ, that means the end really never happens. It's just forever. I love them forever. He loved us forever. In 1 John 4, 8, remember again, it talks about the fact that if you don't have love, you don't love God. If you can't love your neighbor, or, or if, you, if you turn away from trying that, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 1 John 4, 8. Now take a second look at those things. If there's people in your life, again, that you're really struggling with, stop for a minute. Evaluate and see. Do you really love him? Is he really part of your life? Because if he is, you can count on him to help you. You may see dimly now. You may look and say, I think if I look really hard, if I really, really focus, I can see just the slimmest glimmer of love for that person then you know that God will perfect it. God will bring it to completion. He will show you how to love them. And if that doesn't encourage those who struggle with love, then nothing will. And that's it. That's the best we can offer. God will do it. We don't have to, we don't have to provide it on our own, but we have to go to Him and ask for His help for it. So I would encourage all of you, uh, again... Look in your lives. See who it is that you're struggling with. See those areas that you're having a difficulty at and realize love is the one permanent thing that we can talk about. Love is the one thing, and because it comes from God. We can, we can do that. All these other things that we, that we have, the, the teaching, the prophecy, the, the noisy gong and the clanging cymbal and the flute that plays one note only, those, those are things that are going to go away. We're not going to have to deal with those anymore. But love, love never ends. Because the designer of love never ends. And that ought to encourage you on this incredible Mother's Day. Especially if there's been some issues and hurts in your lives with your mothers. To get a hold of them. And break the cycle. And show them how much you love them. Because God first loved you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that you are the author of love. What a great passage. It is just such a blessing to be able to open your word, Lord, and to see what you have to say and to learn from you. You are so incredible. I, I don't even know how to thank you. I don't even know how to, to share with you my gratitude. Yet, Lord, I, I know that there are issues and areas in my life that need a lot of work. And I guess I'd be overwhelmed except for the fact that, that I know you can do things that I can't even imagine. So it's with that, Lord, that I put them all in front of you. You know the names of the people I'm struggling with now. You know their faces, and you know the things in their lives that I don't know. 
But I also know, Lord, that if you will help me and I will can truly love them, that incredible things can happen. But please help us as a body to continue to, to grow in our love for one another and help us as we mature and become more and more like Jesus. Lord, I hope all the, the mothers and mothers-to-be just feel special today. I, I hope that we can treat them in such a way that they can really, truly, and earnestly feel special. Every day actually would be great for all the women here, Lord, because whether they're mothers or not, they are just such special people that you have brought before us. So thank you for that. Guide us, keep us, teach us, and go with us this week, Lord. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.